Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Joining me on today's episode are Ben Robel and Meg Massey, the authors of the recent book, Letting Go, a book about participatory funding. As Ben describes it during the episode, participatory funding is the idea of shifting decision-making power over funding decisions to the communities that are ultimately being served. During our conversation, Ben and Meg make the case that in order to really effectively tackle social challenges, both philanthropists and impact investors need to cede control to people with lived experiences of the challenges they're trying to solve. We talk about the origin of the movement, various ways that organizations have built participation into their funding, and some of the major differences between building participation into philanthropic grant-making versus impact investing. Let's jump into the conversation. Meg, Ben, welcome to the show. The two of you just published a book titled Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do the Most Good by Giving Up Control. The book critiques how traditional grants and impact investments are made and explores alternative models for, for funding. Um, how would you describe the main challenge that the book focuses on? Yeah, um, well, thanks for having us. We're big fans of SoCap, and we uh, we actually talk about it in Chapter 8, which you might have read. Um, <laughs> I did. Yeah. Um, what we write is that participatory funding, both participatory grant making, participatory investing, is an alternative, an antidote to the top-down, closed, and opaque processes that most foundations and most impact investors take to awarding money, to allocating resources. And they're two very different fields, philanthropy and impact investing, we'll we'll talk about both of them. But what they share is that there are people who came into money or who manage other people's money, and they have all the best intentions to do good in the world. But ultimately, there is a level of distance between them and the people who are ultimately being affected by those decisions. And we're, we're suggesting closing that distance. And as you highlight in the book, th- this isn't a new idea, right? This idea of participatory funding has been, has been around for a while. Could you give a, a quick background on the history of participatory investing? Sure. Yeah, we're really thrilled to be here. And the history question is, is one of my favorites because it it's really interesting. In the book, we talk a little bit about the history of philanthropy, specifically um, the origins around the first Gilded Age at the turn of the century back when John Rockefeller's fortune was something like 2% of the U.S. economy. Like today, there was you know, no taxes on the wealthy, there were no labor laws, and so it created this environment where a few men at the top could accrue a lot of wealth and then decide when, with the you know, creation of the modern foundation how to give it away. That model pretty much stayed put until the 1970s when a group of young people who had trust funds who'd inherited money. They were, you know, activists in the 1960s, very committed to uh, racial and gender justice. They wanted to do something different. So in cities around the U.S., they started these participatory grant-making funds where they basically turned over their money to um, community groups and said, you decide how to distribute grants. And on the investing side, there's less of a direct lineage there. On the investing side, there's always been, um, you know, faith-based impact investing. There's been, you know, people who outsource to an investment committee that might have been more diverse, but it's never really been a formal practice. It's really only in the last 10 or so years that we've seen models emerging on the investing side. 
The one caveat to all this is that the idea that Ben was describing, this idea of you know getting away from a top-down way of distributing money, someone who has a lot of money saying, here's a problem, I know how to solve it, here you go. The idea of communities coming together and managing money that's intended to support them, that goes back centuries. There's a lot of indigenous practices in North America, in Africa, um, I believe in South America as well, that are based on that model. So there's that sort of ancient history, but in terms of the modern era, it's really more in the last 10 years that we've seen it on the investment side. Yeah, and one, one point that you bring up in the book that, that I found really interesting is that both philanthropists and impact investors are often operating in areas that are traditionally served by the public sector, right? Like education, like public health, poverty alleviation, I think you highlight. Yet, unlike the public sector, philanthropists and impact investors don't have accountability, right? You can't, you can't vote them out of office like you can a politician, which is, you know, one of the challenges of traditional kind of philanthropic and investment models. I think there is a really close analogy between the challenges that democratic governments have been facing around the world from illiberal forces and the challenges that philanthropy has been facing. We write in the book that a lot of people in the philanthropic field working at foundations believe that philanthropy is at a moment of reckoning. There is renewed public attention thanks to books like Winners Take All by Anand Girdardos or Edgar Villanueva's Decolonizing Wealth, and, and Edgar wrote the foreword for our book. There is this lack of legitimacy that a lot of developed nations are, are seeing with their governments because people feel like their voices are not being heard. And with that has come a renewed attention and, and a lack of legitimacy for philanthropy. That is something that hasn't really happened before because philanthropy has always, it hasn't been as institutional, right? It hasn't been as large. And, and I think that that's a part of the reason that this conversation is happening. And I would add to that, um, Ben mentioned Anand Jared Haradis' book, Winners Take All, which was, you know, along with Edgar's book and, and a few others as part of the lineage in the last few years of this thinking. And we... We saw the book as a yes and to the question of taxing the wealthy. And, you know, yes, there's a lot of reforms to the public sector and tax law that we would like to see. But as long as we live in a world where the wealthy have money to donate and invest, we think these principles should apply. You provide an example of Jeff Bezos and his $10 billion commitment to, to climate change. And, it, it, you know, you kind of raised the question, like, should one person who is unelected and frankly, probably unqualified. I don't, I don't know what his, his um, but like, yeah. should they have so much influence in an area that addresses an issue that has such a profound effect on, you know, society at, at large? Yeah, it's a question of whether, I mean, Jeff Bezos is very good at starting a company, right? He started Amazon. One thing that we, you know, found in our research and had a couple of the people we interviewed mentioned to us is that a lot of especially tech CEOs who then pivot to philanthropy, they tend to approach it with the same mindset of like, I'm going to have a very technocratic approach to do this. I'm going to move fast and break things. And there's usually an ego issue there as well. And doing one thing really well doesn't mean you can do something else really well, right? Starting Amazon doesn't mean you know how to fix climate change. It's not to say that Jeff Bezos shouldn't use his money to that end, but the idea of endowing a single person with that power that's what we're really questioning in the book. Right. Yeah. And you brought up something that I was unaware of, which was that the, the Gates Foundation really has four people who make investment. I think it was Bill, Melinda, Bill's father, right? And Warren Buffett, who are like the four people on, that basically are determining how billions and billions, you know, 
who knows what'll happen with the with the divorce. But at least historically, like you've had four people who are determining how billions of dollars in aid is being directed. But Ben, maybe you could tell me a little bit about the origin of of the book. How did you two decide to to write a book together? Um, how'd you land on on this topic? How did it come about? Sure. Well, I work at Village Capital, uh, which probably some of your listeners know is very well-connected, large nonprofit that runs accelerator programs for impact-driven entrepreneurs at the early stage. So we're, we're impact investors, but we run our accelerators in a very odd way. Uh, we, we have this process called peer-selected investment. And maybe take a step back to say the participatory funding, I don't think we've defined it yet, but it's the idea of shifting decision-making power over funding decisions to the communities that are ultimately being served. So the way the Village Capital does this is that we'll run an accelerator. Let's say we just finished a, a, a FinTech accelerator in uh, East Africa. And the way we do it is we gather 12 entrepreneurs, all from East Africa, all working on FinTech. We put them through our basic business training. They get to know each other very well. There's a lot of peer-to-peer interaction. And then at the very end of the program, after getting to know each other for three months, they will collectively decide as a group which of their peers should receive investment from from us or from our partners. And we've actually done this, we've run this process 70 times, which is a lot (laughs) over the past decade. We've found that it does reduce some of the bias that exists uh, against female entrepreneurs. Women entrepreneurs are more likely to get funded out of this process. And it's it's also an effective way to, to pick winners. So I've always been passionate about that idea, you know, what if you flipped the power dynamics? What if you did things differently? And, and started off looking to see who else was sort of democratizing entrepreneurship and really just quickly came across the world of participatory grant making, which was a much more defined world. And Meg, that's where that's where you, you, you got involved. Yeah, yeah. Ben and I actually um, had our first real conversation about the book at the um, GIN conference in Amsterdam, which was October 2019. So the before times, and I think <laughs> one of the last one of the last conferences that actually happened in person. And you know, Ben was talking about Village Capital's work, and in my background, I'd always been very passionate about really democratizing impact investing, that it can feel like a clubby space, especially um, I'm a communications professional and a journalist. So finding ways to share these stories, to share impact investing with a wider audience is something that, you know, is already in my DNA. But uh, what we talked about was, well, what kind of world are we envisioning exactly? Like, what does it really look like to shift power in impact investing? What does it look like to democratize that space? Obviously, we started with Village Capital because Ben was very, very familiar with with that model. We were looking into what else was out there. And that was where we brought in the philanthropy angle when we learned about participatory grant making, which, as I said earlier, is just has a longer history and is a more specific practice on the philanthropy side, whereas investing, we can get into this, but investing, there's not like one single model for doing it in a participatory way. So once we got plugged into the world of participatory grant making, it, the book started to really take shape around this idea of shifting power, both making the case for it, but also pointing to the steps that funders who, um, the idea of shifting power and questioning their own privilege, people with whom that was resonating, that they would have a sense of what to do next. Yeah. And I, I'd love to dive into some of those specific examples. In, in the book, you describe three major steps in every funding process, you know, whether philanthropic or investment. The first is deciding on a, a theory of change or an investment thesis. 
The second step is building the pipeline of, of potential investments. And then the third is actually, you know, making the actual investment decision. And I, I'd like to dive into all three of them to provide examples of, you know, organizations that are effectively building participation into each step in that process. But maybe we can start it at the beginning with the investment thesis or or the theory of change. How would you build participation into that part of a of an investment process or a grant making process? Right. So beginning with the theory of change, that's the mission as expressed through the type of industry you want to invest in or the place that you want to invest in. On the grant making side, it's similar. It's either the place you want to invest or the um, issue that you're hoping to address. And what's important is that if you are starting with one, you use participation to bring in the other. So if you are starting an investment fund and you say, right, I really care about climate change. I want to invest in climate change mitigation, and I want it to do it in in Africa. Well, if you, you're already starting with the climate change piece, if you want, if you really want to invest in Africa, bring in environmental activists or folks in that space who are African, who who live in African countries, who have that lived experience, who can inform that investment thesis. So it's not just you reading documents and deciding, okay, I, this is what these people in this place need not basing your assessments of the market and your thesis for going into it on your own experience, but bringing in that lived experience. And then likewise, if you want to invest in, say, Argentina, talk to Argent- Argentinians about what what it is, what is it they're looking like, what, okay, what do you need? What are the major problems that you're facing and keeping them in conversation with one another? So that's at the investment thesis level. And similarly, that process of priority setting or coming up with a mission statement, there's a lot of different ways to do that, but it just starts with the idea that you need all those voices in the room at the start if that's possible. Yeah, it, it seems like common sense, but... but <laughs> right, but you'd be surprised. And it comes, I mean, one thing that we tried when we talk about the book, like we understand that it's coming from a good place, you know, that most most funders are acting in good faith. They see poverty or other issues in the world and they genuinely want to address them. It's a matter of um, bringing some humility to that and saying, I see this through my lens of my experience as a problem. I need, I need to gut check all this with people who are actually experiencing that. And it's finding a way to take that, take that empathy and that desire for change and using it to see, okay, so who's, who's not in this conversation right now? Who, who, who else do I need to bring into the room? And ultimately, it's about shifting and sharing power, right? Exactly. And the people that are running these funds or making these decisions aren't necessarily best equipped to solve the problems. Exactly. And that's where building the pipeline kind of builds on that. If you've already engaged a community in setting your investment thesis, then as you seek out companies to invest in, then there's a lot about this from Village Capital, but the way that you source deals is also really important. There's been a lot written about how that also tends to be, you know, if you're a white guy who went to Stanford, you are going to get a lot more meetings with investors than if you're, you know, a black woman from who went to, you know, uh, now I can't think of a random university, but not Stanford. Went to a school that is not Stanford. So all of those statistics still apply here. And we talk in the book about different ways to get out of that mindset that your network is the only network that can possibly be tapped to source deals, ways that you can reach out to affinity groups or bring other people with lived experience into your conversations about building the pipeline. 
And there's a lot of different ways to do that. But again, the, the idea is to get more voices in the room and make decisions with input from those voices, or even going to someone who lives in a community and saying, I really want to invest in this community. Like, what do the residents want here? Who's doing something really exciting here? And bringing those in. And we talked to uh, Lucas Turner Owens, who was the fund manager for the Boston Ujima Fund, which I know you've talked about on the podcast before. And the way that he he talked about it was, you know, because they do local, that's a neighborhood-based fund. And when they were starting to source deals to source potential investments, they were asking residents, well, okay, what do you need? And if the residents are saying, we want a grocery store that sells these items, we want better internet, then that already gives you the way he put it was like, you know, you have to believe that if we then provide that service, they are going to become customers. There are clients or they're going to be actually using it. So it's in a lot of ways, that's a really sound way of conducting due diligence and also limiting due diligence to simply looking at spreadsheets. It's not that they're not important, but again, that needs to be balanced with real lived experience. And also, frankly, considering what the value is and what, you know, if you're making an investment, what is the expected impact and checking that with the community? Because as anyone who, <laughs> anyone who's familiar with impact measurement can talk about, if you are setting an imperfect North Star from get, then it can really skew your sense of what's successful or not. And this is also a good, a good space for figuring out how you define success, how the community defines success, how the others who are part of your firm define success, and making sure that everyone is on the same page. And that gets into the last step, which is the investment decision itself. And this is where we've seen some really interesting examples of ways to bring more voices into the decision about making an investment. Morgan Simon and Candide Group have the Olamina Fund, which invests in financial institutions that are led by Black and Indigenous people in the United States and also serve those communities. And so they have like an auxiliary committee that votes on investment decisions, and it's made up of people who are Black and Indigenous and, and Latinx, I believe, and who have led or are currently leading uh, financial institutions. And they have this vote on the investment decisions that this fund makes, and they are benefiting from that lived experience, right? These are people who have lived and done this work and giving them a vote is not, you know, it's not charity. It's not like a nice thing to do. It's, it's very tangibly a good investment decision. And so there are several other examples uh, that we can talk more about, but that's one where it's just such a straightforward change. Like bring those people into your investment committee, give them a seat at the table, give them a vote, more than one ideally. <laughs> and it's a win-win. Yeah, no, the Olamina Fund is is great, and and yeah, we we had Lucas Turner Owens and Aaron Tanaka on the podcast um, a couple of years ago now, I, I think. And it, if I remember correctly, one of the things that they are doing that that's pretty innovative is that they're they're giving like an equal vote in the investment decision to all the members, regardless of the size of their investment. So whether or not somebody contributed like a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand yeah. dollars to the fund, they get an equal say in how that money is allocated, which would be an example of kind of democratizing that third step in the, in the process. Right. And that's the Boston Ujima fund, right? Yeah. And whereas Village Capital is making investments globally in high growth startups, the Boston Ujima fund is much more of a local approach. There's a neighborhood in Boston called Roxbury. Well, Roxbury, Dorchester, there's a couple neighborhoods and in Mount South Penn, Boston. Yeah. And Mattapan, Meg's from Boston. I'm not, so she she always corrects me there. <laughs> me too. Um, <laughs> so they're you know working class, very BIPOC neighborhoods, and uh, the history of economic development in these neighborhoods has been 
outsiders coming in with money and recently gentrifying, bringing in Whole Foods, bringing in condos, which is something also happening a lot in Washington, D.C., where I live. And the, the sort of final straw for residents of the neighborhood was back in 2013 when the city decided to submit a bid for the Olympics. And they decided to do this without telling anybody. They hired a consulting firm and they submitted the bid and their plans for the bid involved just raising the neighborhood to build a couple of stadiums that would eventually sit unused. So that led to a big backlash. And ultimately, the then leader of the Boston NAACP, a woman named Nia Evans, decided to start to work with Aaron Tanaka, who is a really academic theorist around some of this democratic economy stuff, and build a new model that would bypass the, the, the city's planning agency. And, and the Boston Ujima Fund is, they, they call themselves, they are the first, the nation's first democratic investment fund. Like you said, anyone can put money into this fund. Um, there are Boston synagogues, I think hospitals, there are Harvard students, um, anyone can put money in, you know, I think some, some of their donors are $50,000 or more, but also the fund accepts donations from non-accredited investors who are residents of this neighborhood, and they can put money in as, for as little as $50. The key, of course, is that the only people who get to decide on where they invest are residents of the neighborhood. The folks who put more money in and don't live there do not get to decide. They just don't get a vote, and they understand this going in. So that's more of a local model that has gotten a lot of attention. Are there certain issue areas or types of funds that this is most effective for? Like in that example with community development, right? Like it makes a ton of sense having the people who are living in the community being involved in that decision. Are there other areas where it's you know more or less effective? You know, one answer is medical research. When you're trying to find a cure for COVID, you want to trust scientists to make that decision. There are some things that simply require, you know, an advanced degree, but that is a very small minority of the money that is given out. You know, a lot of people these days talk about this term wicked problems, which is a great term to describe problems that are not only complicated, but complex. Um, and it is the type of problem that is more and more common in the world today. There are a lot of stakeholders, there's a lot of factors, there's a lot of angles, and it's a very, they're very human problems, anything from deep-seated poverty to, to climate change, right? Uh, where there's no one single solution as opposed to something like a vaccine. So, you know, there are, of course, places where you, yes, yeah, so you might want to trust the scientists. Um, another example that's come up is disaster relief. Disaster relief requires very fast response and participatory groundmaking. We can talk a little bit about it it is slower. <laughs> you know, it, it is very intentionally uh, more deliberate process. So in some cases, you know, it might not be appropriate. But, but then again, as we've started to use that example, someone pointed out that the Disability Rights Fund, which is a really, really successful participatory grant maker, decisions are made by a committee of disabled activists. They have been doing their peer review process for about a decade. And last year when COVID hit, they actually were able to run a really very fast and efficient disaster relief funding round because they already had built a network and connections uh, community in, you know, with activists in countries around the world. So, you know, in the long run, as participatory grant making grows, the benefits start to accumulate. Yeah, and we haven't really differentiated between impact investing and grant making. We've kind of just shifted back and forth between the, the two areas of, of funding, as you do in the book. Has the adoption of participatory funding kind of mirrored each other within those two sectors? Are there differences between the two? 
when it comes to implementation? Yeah, I, I'd say that participatory grant making is more of a of an established field. We're part of a group, a group called the Participatory Grant Making Community, which I'd encourage everyone to check out. You can Google it. We have a website. And it's a peer practitioner group of funders and also folks like academics and anyone interested trying to share information about participatory grant making. And there's some really great guides out there about how to do it. But that also reflects the fact that philanthropy is you know, there are dozens and dozens of affinity groups, and there's a lot of sort of conversation about how do we do this. Impact investing is uh, not always like that. And, and maybe Matt can speak a little bit more more to why that is. Yeah, impact investing is definitely a little less straightforward. In terms of the vision setting, the um, investment thesis piece, like, we, you know, there's still not a ton of examples of that. And the examples that we cite in the book are are very diverse, whereas on the participatory grant making side, like there's the closed collective and open collective models, which maybe we can explain later. But there's a couple of, you know, very sort of accepted ways of, of starting with with variants on the investing side. We talked about the Boston Ujima Fund, which is very unique. They are part of a collective called Seed Commons, which is a all small uh, community loan funds, which is just a traditional community loan fund. They are more explicitly controlled by that community, and they are mostly marginalized communities, either you know poor working class, communities of color. So they take that approach. There's also um, on the foundation endowment side, uh, we write about the Heron Foundation, which committed last year to turning over uh, 100% of investment decisions about its endowment to communities. And they've been very transparent about the fact that they are building the plane as they're flying it. No, no one has ever done this before. And they've outlined a series of steps that involve, you know, gradually transitioning that control. But there are, I, I really appreciate how frank they've been about the fact that no one has done this before. And so there's no set path they're following. There's also a wonderful report that came out a few years ago from the National Community Capital Coalition. And they break down the different legal structures for starting a participatory investing fund. Like these are the different accepted legal structures for launching the fund. It's a bit trickier when you're working with an existing investment fund and wanting to shift to something more participatory. Again, you know, I, we point to the pipeline building, finding better, you know, more participatory ways of sourcing deals and conducting due diligence, and then also convening an advisory board or adding seats to an investment committee. We've seen a few examples of those, but again, this is still very much like a, a burgeoning field and. Uh, at SOCAP last year, uh, I sat in on the session that Jed Emerson led and asked you know, a very hard question about whether impact investing as a field is ready to transition that power. We write in the book about how, yes, philanthropy and impact investing, we, we talk about them in the same book because it's the same marketplace. Edgar Villanueva called it the loans to gifts spectrum. It's, you know, here's the spectrum of ways that you can fund social change. But when it comes down to it, Impact investing is ultimately derived from finance. It adopts the same fund structures, the same, you know, the same scaffolding basically as, as traditional investing, which that means it comes with all the good and all the bad from traditional investing. And we write that if it truly does want to differentiate itself from traditional investing, it's not just about what you invest in, it's about how you invest. And that's that's a real shift that you know, we're, we're seeing some really exciting movement, but that sort of wholehearted embrace, I think we're still waiting on. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, how, how do you make sure that it's done 
authentically? Are there models for making sure that you have the right representation in these decisions and it's not kind of tokenism, I think, as you describe it in the book? Yeah, I think there are a lot of models and that's something that's challenging is that there is, I mean, there's no one-stop shop to find all the answers. And I think that's probably for a reason. Once something becomes too defined and formal, it's easier to co-opt and, and to sort of twist. And I think a lot of these models have evolved organically, which is probably the right way to go about it. Some of the best practices that we've seen that apply to both grant making and investing one is to pay your peer reviewers or at least compensate them for their time. It takes time to you know, go out of your day and log on to a Zoom call or go to a room and, and discuss what you think are, you're essentially doing the job of a, of a program officer. And one of the best practices that has evolved is making sure that you're compensating for their time. You also wanna think about whether your peer reviewers are truly representative of the community that you're trying to reach. Um, there's a danger that you would only select sort of grass tops organizers, some of the same faces that you see at conferences. And one way to get around this is a lot of the times nonprofits can act as intermediaries and provide connections, authentic connections to those communities. But I think there's, you know, there's no, while there are some more best practices and anyone can reach out and we, we, we're happy to put you in touch with the right people. It's always a process of iteration and evolution and a lot of give and take and trial and error. And I think that everyone who's done this has, has said that that's, that's part of it. That's sort of a feature, not a bug. The process is the point was a common refrain for us in terms of the iteration piece. But the real, it, it really does boil down to trust. Um, we write about Sherry Arnstein's ladder of participation, which is very academic and wonky. But the example I, I like to use to illustrate it is that when you fill out a customer service feedback survey, you have no idea if that company is going to take it seriously and address whatever it is you say, or if they're just, it's going to go in a pile. Whereas if they say, hey, you know, we want you to vote on these three ideas and the top three vote cutters will launch or, or something where it's very, very clear, I'm going to play this role. And here is how the time and effort and expertise that I'm putting into it will impact the outcome. So there's a distinction between the tokenism you described, which is, you know, if you ask community residents to fill out a survey or come to a town hall and you already kind of know what decision you're going to make, regardless of what they say, that, that's not fair to that community. That's not fair to those people. Either truly engage them and say, can you give us a list of you know, three areas in this neighborhood that need investment or a specific task, and we will take those and we will run with them. Or, hey, we're going to give you a list of five potential investments. Can you weigh in on each of them and advise us on a decision? And your advice will be taken into account along with the advice from these three other people. Whatever, whatever the case may be, being very, very clear about not only the fact that they have a voice, but this is how it's going to matter. That's often a missing step between you know, the performative and true shifting of power. Yeah, I got the impression from the book that we're just kind of getting to a place of being able to evaluate outcomes of using these participatory practices versus traditional funding methodologies. Is that right? I mean, what are you seeing in terms of results? Obviously, Ben, at, at Village Capital, you are at the forefront, at least from an investing standpoint. It's a tough question, right? Because in some ways, it's a tough question because a lot of these models are only 10 years old. In other ways, it's a tough question because evaluation of impact investing is just tricky in general. The, the village capital and in investing, people are basically looking at, okay, how are these portfolios performing? And village capital, I'd say, is the, the longest running one. 
there are other ways though to judge effectiveness. So one story we tell is with the Disability Rights Fund. They came around 10, 12 years ago. And the reason that they were formed uh, was because the United Nations had, re- had just passed a human rights treaty. And the way the treaties work, we learned a lot about the United Nations. Apparently the way the treaties work is once they pass, they then, then have to get ratified by every country in the world or else you know it's irrelevant. So that required, that's a wicked problem. That requires a lot of coordinated political advocacy. And the Disability Rights Fund was created because of that. 10 years later, more than 120 countries have ratified the treaty, which I'm told is pretty impressive as far as how fast the UN moves. And a lot of that is attributed to the Disability Rights Fund. And that is that is one of those big picture wins that I think any philanthropist would sort of be looking at. Another way to think about success is how you're helping the peer reviewers actually gain the skill sets and, and the knowledge of how, basically putting them in, in a funder's shoes. Um, I was just talking this morning with a grant maker uh, who does participatory grant making, and she was talking about how she always sends her peer reviewers to conferences because, you know, they're acting as the program officer. They're the leaders here. They need to go and, and spend time. And it's that time at conferences, especially as we get back in person, you know, that the conversations around the water cooler, the chance to actually have a an equal power dynamic between a funder and a fundee that leads to all sorts of sort of network connections and knowledge that you just don't get in a traditional power dynamic relationship. So um, the short answer is that it's hard. The numbers are coming in. Um, the longer answer is that there are all sorts of knock-on effects. And do you think this is the the future of the space? Well, we we set out in the book, we've adopted Edgar Villanueva's goal that 50% of decisions about funding should be made by the people affected by those decisions, right? We want to create more pathways for those people to bring their expertise to these decisions and to have that expertise considered the same way you'd consider the expertise of someone who worked on Wall Street. That is the goal. You know, there is a long way to go, but I think the pandemic and also the kind of re-energizing of the Black Lives Matter protests over the last year have really... I think people are a lot more open to this than they might have been before. We we did start writing the book before the pandemic, and then most of it was written in 2020. So there were trends that we had observed when we got started that then we saw rapidly just accelerate because we were suddenly in this emergency. And then you also had this huge reckoning with with racial justice. And then as we write about in the afterward, you know, Ben and I were not that far from the U.S. Capitol when the insurrection happened on January 6th. So you suddenly had all these very visible, very tangible events that made the need for the type of reforms that we're describing a lot clearer and brought them to a more receptive audience. So I think we're both optimistic about a longer term shift in the field to think about Again, not just the what of impact investing, but the how. But I think, you know, how that plays out, you know, at what point we reach that 50% threshold, that is still an unknown. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of it stems from just the increasing income and wealth inequality, right? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a, and that's like the or that's the or issue here, right? <laughs> <laughs> that that's, that's really where all this comes from. And so, the timeline at which we see we see some of these shifts in the field may also be dictated by whether there's reform tax rates or you know or other policy decisions that have a ripple effect. It'll also depend again on it depends on humility, right? We're asking people with a lot of money to set their egos aside and be humble, and that's in any circumstance that's usually a huge ask. Not to say that every that every single person 
with money um, is like that, but it's, it was also something that frankly, Ben and I had to do when we were writing this book that we were going into these spaces where maybe we hadn't been before. And we were having to, you know, always be in listening mode to, you know, reckon with our own privilege, our own preconceived notions. We write in the introduction that we acknowledge that we have our own blind spots and we did our best, but we both still have a lot to learn. And I think it's really important to just model that openness to being proved wrong. And like I said, I think I, I'm seeing that that willingness in the field writ large. Uh, it's just a matter of how quickly it comes to fruition. Is there anything that I haven't asked that either of you would like to mention before I let you go? One thing to mention is that, you know, in the afterword of the book, we do write about the insurrection, which is, you know, just the most important thing that's happened in the United States recently. <laughs> and I think is should be on everyone's mind because it's a pretty big deal. And we do talk about one particular way to address the challenge of rising nationalism that funders should be aware of. And it is um, investing in participatory democracy. So it's, again, it's a different topic than grant making, a different topic than investing. But there are these emerging models, and a lot of them have been around for a while, for more direct democracy. And there are nonprofits that are looking for funding that are pushing these models. So one of the models is participatory budgeting which is where community members get to decide directly on what gets funded in their city. Uh, another model is policy juries, which involves bringing folks together, randomly selected juries of citizens to weigh in and sort of in a very low, low passion way, you know, debate sort of really tough issues. And it's just one way to reinstill a sense of sort of involvement in the democratic process that is particularly important right now. Well, Ben, Meg, congratulations on, on publishing this book. It's, it's really well done. I learned quite a bit from reading it and, and would encourage all our, our listeners to, to check it out. So thank you both for taking the time to join me on the show and for the great work that, that you're doing. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Ben Robel and Meg Massey on their book, Letting Go, How Philanthropists and Impact Investors Can Do the Most Good by Giving Up Control. As always, you can find additional information on our website at SoCapGlobal.com, or you can visit the book webpage at LettingGoBook.org. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at MoneyAndMeaningPodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.